Hello. Today is Friday, January 14th, 2022. Today's episode features a pre-recorded conversation with Justin Streckel. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to remind you that we are giving away a Chillinoy t-shirt that was signed by Tommy Chong. You can enter to win at chillinoy.net slash chong. Be sure to do that before February 16th. Also, I wanted to mention that Chicago Normal will be having their third annual lobbying workshop on January 16th and 17th. That's in two days. You can register now at bit.ly slash lobbyingws. We'll have that link in the show notes. Enjoy the show. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Well, hey, Justin, welcome to the Chillinois podcast. Um, For folks that don't know your name, can you uh, tell us your name and introduce yourself to the audience of the Chillinois podcast? You got it. Well, thank you so very much for having me. My name is Justin Streckel, and I am a longtime organizer and advocate, and most recently, formally, uh, the former normal political director, uh, where I served as the organization's federal lobbyist and and providing guidance and support to activists around the country. Hell yeah. And uh, for that reason, I was very excited to sit down with you today. Um, Can you tell, like, obviously you didn't just, uh, I I don't want to assume, but you you didn't just start as the director of Normal. Tell us a little bit about uh, your past and you know, advocating for cannabis uh, legalization slash decriminalization, and maybe even what led you to do that? I had a, I had a very winding road uh, be, before I found myself working at Normal. Uh, I was first, you know, I, I like to joke, I was first radicalized uh, into thinking about my own agency to, to influence government in 2003 um, in the lead up to the war in, uh, in Iraq. And, and my opposition to that. And I, you know, I was still in high school at the time and uh, with a few friends, we organized student walkouts and, and I attended rallies and, and you know, trying to prevent the invasion of Iraq. Um, you know, since then, I, I, I've really you know, engaged in, in the political process through a lot of different uh, ways. I, I worked on campaigns around the country and you know, starting off as, as, a, as a volunteer that, you know, later I got uh, would be hired onto political campaigns. Um, I've managed congressional campaigns now in, in the past, um, and you know, a city council race in New York and a state house race in Colorado, and and that meeting with stakeholder groups and and working with different uh, individuals who put themselves forward to be elected officials gave me a really unique window into uh, the mechanics of how to build political power and learn a lot of things that don't work over, over through trial and experience, or trial and error, I should say. Um, so, you know, that, what, what led me to normal was I was the deputy campaign manager on a congressional campaign in Virginia for a state senator who had a good position on marijuana as, as a Virginia state senator. And normal endorsed our campaign. 
I got to know some of the activists in, in the region. They showed up, they helped, they helped knock on doors for us. They hosted an event um, that, that, you know, where we talked about and had like a really in-depth marijuana policy discussion. And while the congressional campaign was not successful, the following year, the state Senator Adam Eben of Virginia returned to Richmond and hired me as his legislative aide. And from that, and, and because of the influence and power that Normal had uh, developed with State Senator Eben, uh, we agreed to introduce the chamber's first ever decriminalization bill. And Normal was incredibly helpful along with other groups like the ACLU and, and other civil rights groups uh, and NAACP to get that bill introduced and, and really get it a lot of attention. And while ultimately we weren't successful in 2015, that was the precursor that led us not to only decriminalize the Commonwealth of Virginia in 2019, but to legalize the state of, of, of Virginia in 2021 um, as Senator Eben was the, um, was the sponsor of the bill that was signed into law and you know, making Virginia the 18th state to have legalized it. And, and still to, at this moment, the, the most recent one to do so. Uh, so after that great experience, yeah, Normal called me up and they said, you know, I, I had a good working relationship with Eric Altieri, who had just been tapped to be the new executive director of Normal at the time in 2016. And uh, they, you know, he, he invited me to come join the organization and, and serve as its political director, where I did for just over five years. Very cool. Very cool. Wow, 2016. So um, you've seen history. Oh, here, here, here's, here's uh, what I like to joke about it. I, I started talking about the possibility of the job in September. I accepted the job in October of 2016. So I was thinking, given my previous relationships and, and, and working in with, you know, I, I did an internship at the White House. I'd worked on the president's camp, then President Obama's campaign in 08. I knew a lot of people in, in the administration. I was assuming that Hillary Clinton was likely to win the presidency. And then I could, I could use those relationships to help advance the cause of reform. Um, you know, selling the idea that marijuana reform is popular and that, you know, soon to, uh, assumingly soon to be elected President Clinton was not and make that case. Um, but then, you know, the 2016 election came and went, and I very quickly found myself contending with the Trump administration and his selection for Attorney General anti-zealot yeah. Jeff Sessions. And I was organizing and, you know, identifying people around the country to go protest him when he was doing public speaking engagements and, and trying to push back and hold the line to prevent the DOJ from going in and shutting down the, the, the legalization experiments that were underway. Because at the time, you know, Colorado had just come online uh, yeah. with adult sales only a couple of years earlier. And we've talked about it a bit before, but for folks that don't know, why did you get, like, why is Jeff Sessions on your radar? I mean, he's made a few easy statements, but I want to give you a softball question here. Yeah. Why was Jeff Sessions concerning you? Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, <laughs> named after like three different Confederate uh, leaders, he he was an anti-marijuana zealot. I mean, he is, for, for all intents and purposes, he, he is a Christian fascist and, and believes that we, we should impose some kind of theocracy in this country. And, and you only need to look at some of the work he did as the attorney general, really promoting 
more of a, a, a Christo-fascist worldview through the DOJ. Um, and earlier in 2016, when he was still Senator from Alabama, from the dais of the Senate, he said in no emphatic terms, good people do not smoke marijuana. And, and he would talk about marijuana and his opposition to its consumption for any purposes on a semi-regular basis, both as Senator and then later as Attorney General. And, and he really, you know, at the time we were incredibly concerned that, that the D, we would see a coordinated effort at the DOJ to shut down the, the state marketplaces because at the end of the day, we are a federalist Republican constitutional government and, and every state program that we see, be it the 38 medical states or the now 18 adult use states are still in complete defiance of federal prohibition and criminalization and because Jeff Sessions rescinded the Cole memo, and under you know even to this day under under now President Biden and Attorney General uh, Garland, there still is no guidance de deterring U.S. attorneys from enforcing federal law and walking into dispensaries and arresting it, their owners for being analogous to heroin kingpin drug dealers. Um, you know, it is sheer political will that we are in this uneasy detente of, of, of state reforms and that, that by every metric are successful and federal prohibition. Yeah, and uh, that's another thing we mentioned on the show. I always make the joke, my name's Cole, uh, the Cole memo, right? Um, tell people, though, what, like, why is that our opera, like, why is that important to cannabis legislation? It's basically what it's allowed us to operate, but is that basically in short? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, a law is only as, 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 as worthwhile as to the extent that it's going to be enforced. And, you know, we, we see in some areas of public policy, laws on the books that are never enforced. And then we see some areas where, you know, laws, laws may be on the books, and their enforcement is actually really stretching the intent of the law or outright undermining the intent of the law. Um, for, for other purposes. So when, when it comes to criminalization of marijuana, we see in some regions of this country, law enforcement, you know, do not prioritize it at all. And then in some areas, we've seen it be incorporated in like stop and frisk tactics, which I, 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 I don't know if that was if that's a big issue in Chicago, but I, I used to work in New York politics. And, and that was a huge egregious practice that um, you know, police would just use no suspicion whatsoever, other than they're you're young, you're young and, and of color, to empty their pockets looking for something to give them that charge, even if it's only you know a, a gram of cannabis. Um, so the the Cole memo was about saying, hey, we're not going to use federal re resources to uh, to go after state legal marijuana programs, the businesses, the regulators, or the consumers. Uh, on the condition that they don't violate these eight pretty common sense practices, um, you know, interstate diversion, selling to minors, et cetera. Um, and, and that even since that policy memo has been rescinded, it's still been the ethos. The, the, the ethos of it has, has so while it's, it's no longer a formal guidance, um, it's still largely just adhered to. It lives on in spirit. <laughs> Cool. Um, well, uh, you know, tell us what was your experience um, 
like it, Norma? What was it like to see the change that you have seen between 2016 and 2021? I mean, you mentioned just last year we saw some states legalize. I mean, we saw a few states legalize. Even actually this year, we've got more states that just opened. I mean, 14 days ago, I think, right? Some states have begun adult use sales. Um, what was it like to see that <clears throat> continued uh, progression, right? And and to be able to help with that. Yeah. And in many ways, it, it was really miraculous. And in many ways, it, it was frustrating every day. Um, you know, when when we exist in this political moment where a supermajority of, of all Americans support legalization, and in my tenure there, we actually saw Poland shift to now have an outright majority of Republican voters supporting legalization. Uh, and, and, and see, you know, when, when I walked in the door at normal, there were eight legal states. When I walked out five years later, there were 18. Um, and, you know, working with activists and advocates and, uh, you know, both in cannabis and other organizations that have, you know, that are supportive and allies and, and work with together in solidarity. Um, you know, really start to change the question from are we going to legalize marijuana to when are we going to legalize marijuana and how are we going to legalize marijuana? And a lot of the arguments and, and, and great debates that are happening right now um, around the country in, in city council chambers, state houses, in the Congress, and, and in, in, you know, in, in smoking circles, all, all, you know, digitally and, and in person, we're very fortunate to have these arguments that we're having now. Are we gonna have interstate commerce or are we gonna delay it? Are we going to, you know, are we going to issue a hundred licenses or only 12? Are we going, you know, all these other components that are incredibly important and deserve rigorous public scrutiny and, and, and informed debate and earnest efforts to do our best and a willingness to acknowledge mistakes or failures of these experiments and to tweak them and reform them and make them better and more accessible and inclusive going forward. Um, you know, but it, you know, it's, it's still incredibly important work, but I feel like, you know, now we're finally starting to, to be able to focus on getting it right. Well said. Well, um, you know, before we get into talking maybe about like some of your thoughts about Illinois, which will, will, you know, intrigue our audience, I'm sure, um, intrigue or, and when we get to it in form, um, I wanted to ask you about like, you know, you're talking, I agree with you. We're in a very fortunate place about, or in the fact that we're able to have these conversations, like limited licenses versus open market, which is a conversation I'm sure we'll have regarding Illinois, um, just because that's, you know, one thing that's caused a lot of people grief. Um, we're talking about the possibility of interstate commerce when, I'm sorry, but in 2005 or 2003, you would have been like, what are you, you're thinking about that? Like, you're way ahead of the game. Like, that wouldn't have been thought of, in other words. So we're in a really good spot as far as, like, where we stand with reform. Like, I feel like we're close and we, and we're even talking about achieving meaningful reform at this point. Right. That's, that's awesome. Cause in the past, even 10 years ago, we weren't even close. Right. So it's crazy how close we truly are with that regard. Like with that said, there are still people out there. You mentioned Jeff Sessions that uh, oppose the legalization of cannabis. We actually just sat down with 
It's interesting. You know, I didn't realize uh, that you were, uh, uh, what'd you say, an intern for the Obama administration? Uh, yeah, at the White House. Yeah, At the White House. Um, I was reading that Kevin Sabet, uh, who also served in the Obama administration, you know, Kevin, uh, the, the, what is his official title? The leader of smart yeah. approaches to marijuana. Um, I wanted to ask you like what it's like to have to work. I mean, with, I don't mean to say that normal worked with Sam, but I mean, the, you know, you're having conversations from across the aisle. Um, what's it like to deal with organizations like that? We just had them on our show and they have this weird um, stance where it's like, they try to say that they support decriminalization of limited amounts of cannabis, but they don't support commercialization, which like, it's like, we almost agree on that. Like, I don't want to see the monopolization of cannabis, but I don't know. I'm, I'm talking, I can go everywhere with this one. I want to hear like what your opinion is on like an organization, like smart approaches to marijuana. So, you know, sometimes, uh, I had, you know, we, I, I, I would make somewhat counterproductive, uh, on its face decisions, but you know, in my, in my efforts to utilize the political moment and, and the value of decades of organizing by activists at normal, um, I took the unofficial policy of, of not acknowledging pro, pro, uh, Project Sam's existence as the political director of normal because it wasn't worth my time or energy or any column inches or airtime for me to acknowledge the worldview of someone who I view as a completely disingenuous actor when it comes to this issue. Um, you know, prohibition is something that Project Sam supports. You know, he, he, you know, Kevin Sebeck can say that he supports decriminalizing small amounts of, for, for simple possession, but, you know, right now we, that's still prohibition, right? It's still prohibited and there is a consequence and law enforcement still has the mandate to enter into an interaction with a citizen based right. on mere suspicion of possession. So, so Kevin Sebeck wants to perpetuate prohibition which has been wielded as a tool to predominantly oppress people of color and poor people in this country. So in my view, Kevin Sabet is a tool of the oppressors. And, and so I didn't acknowledge his existence or his efforts because why would I, as, as the political director of Normal, an organization that you know, has name, name recognition by about half of America, um, and has name recognition by now most members of Congress in, in no small part because of my work. And you know, why would I elevate him into my sphere, right? When Project Sam, despite their best efforts and, and what they'll tell you, you know, maybe, maybe 1% of the population is aware of their existence. And much of the, the work that they do really cherry picks data. And, 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 and normal, I had to be willing to take on the, the tough questions and the scrutiny when, you know, there are, you know, to argue like, look, we need to legalize this substance while not overselling or pretending like that, that this, this mood altering, mind altering substance isn't without risk, isn't without harm. 
but we allow for we allow cigarette companies to 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 exist with restrictions on their advertising and and consumer access for for minors same with alcohol in my view we could have more alcohol restrictions on advertising and i think that would probably be good for our culture um i think i i, I personally am very concerned about mar the marijuana industry and advertising i would like to see heavy heavy restrictions if not a a, a, a ban on marijuana related advertising in public spaces um, in order not to be selling a culture of cool um, to, to quote Philip Seymour Hoffman from Almost Famous. Um, but, you know, I, I, I really think that, that he is just a complete disingenuous asshole and, and he is not worthy of recognition or airtime. And his, you know, at, at this point, he has created a, a, an organizational vehicle that I'm sure compensates him very generously for his efforts um, that, that I view as perpetuating oppression and racism in this country. Well, thank you for addressing that because I think it's important that, that we gave it at least that amount of, of airtime because, um, like I said, uh, just to switch over to the, to the topic of decriminalization and commercialization, like, look, like you said, um, like first and foremost in my mind it's that we have to remove the criminal ele element uh of, of it right and a lot of people get frustrated with that because they want to go full-blown and i look i get it look i would like the stores open too but like i say first and foremost let's remove the police from the equation right yeah. it's it's uh at a certain point you have to start treating the substances as, as equal and it's interesting when i brought that up they were like we you can't you can't compare and i'm like but let's just add a baseline right Let's be reasonable, right? Intoxicating drive, intoxicated driving, not okay. Giving the drug to minors, not okay, right? Like we can, like we're not just, just. It's interesting how, like, I, I will say, well, this, this, I'm, I'm glad that that I get to talk about because this is my first interview that I've done post normal where I've, I've said that publicly. So now you get to break that news on your podcast. <laughs> you know, former normal staffer dishes on Project Sam. Uh, if you want, I don't know. Uh, but at least your your listeners can hear it. Um, I, I will say the, the last thing that one of the lines I used a lot uh, when lobbying um, to people who were kind of receptive to that worldview of just thinking like decriminalization is a good place to land. I, I would remind them that decriminalization perpetuates law enforcement's role and and, and which is perpetual and it's and it maintains prohibition. And prohibition is the absence of controls with the exception of state violence. And, and, and it's, it, you know, so prohibition is, is marijuana regulation with the gun. And, and, you know, that's why we need to move to thoughtful regulations because prohibition of marijuana, if you believe its stated goals, prohibit the substance from being consumed, has failed, it is objectively failed. And I think if there are individuals who, who do truly believe that, you know, maybe marijuana shouldn't be consumed by people, you're, it, it's actually a reverse um, incentive structure because by maintaining prohibition, you're ceding the market share to unlicensed actors, to unregulated actors who have no disincentive because they've already demonstrated a willingness to break the law. So they have no further real disincentive from you know, selling to children, 
not checking IDs, not having safe products. You know, all these people who, Kevin Sabat's amongst their cheerleaders who are like, oh, you know, talking about marijuana laced fentanyl when there's only ever been, to my knowledge, one documented case of it, um, is, is, you know, if that's truly a concern, then we need to get it out of the illicit market, put it into a regulated market. This is America. Supposedly capitalists are awesome. And, and, and they're going to, and we say no marijuana laced fentanyl and those businesses will not sell marijuana laced fentanyl. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really, we, we are in the death rattles of prohibition right now. And, and, and we are going to see in these death rattle times, some really egregious and far fetched stretches of, of arguments by the likes of Kevin and, and other enablers of, of the continued oppression under prohibition. To your point, one of the arguments that I've seen them make is like, they're like, they'll point out state recalls and they'll be like, well, you see the marijuana is not safe. And it's like, but hold on, would a recall be happening if right? Do, do like just unlicensed people like text all their buddies like, Hey man, I got a recall. If you got this batch, uh, like that just doesn't happen. Right. So exactly. Great, great example. Great example. Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, it's an interesting time that we live in when, when, like you say, everybody has known normal as a household name and it's becoming normalized. And then, this organization it, it took me took me by surprise and so that's why it intrigued me and I'm, i appreciate you being willing to to talk about uh their efforts just you know so that people can get another perspective on it so um yeah i mean let me ask you i wanted to go back to what i think i used the wrong words when i when i was saying like decriminalization like i say i totally okay with like um it being sold in stores and stuff. But one, one thing that like we've pointed out um, in Illinois, for example, like people say that it's been legalized in Illinois. Meanwhile, like, and we'll, this is a separate conversation that we're planning to have the, the license structure, like um, it's like hard to become a licensed operator. So it's like, is it legal when you're going to give me criminal penalties for selling because I'm unlicensed? When really that should be like maybe a business, uh, a business offense, right? You sell liquor um, without a liquor license, with the exception of to minors. You know, you don't do that. But like, let's say you and I, we have a bunch of friends over that are all twenty-one. At my new business, I start serving you guys liquor, and then somebody calls because I don't have a liquor license. That's a business offense. It's not a criminal offense. Yeah. If I did that with cannabis, though, all of a sudden it's a, a criminal offense, right? So. That's one instance where we're like, is it legal? Another instance where we're like, is it truly legal if you can get a, re- uh, you can still get a class A misdemeanor for possession of uh, more than 30 grams of, of cannabis? And so like some people get mad at me, like on the advocacy side, because they're like, Cole, these are good things. Like, like you, you weren't able to possess an ounce of cannabis in the past. Like you should be happy about the progress we make, we've made, but I'm just like, yeah, but it's not enough. Like I don't, I, and I think you agree with me, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the, on the idea of possession limits and cultivation limits. Cause like, my thing is like cannabis isn't legal until you can have as much grow as much as you want, need, or please. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't seem to be, that's not been a part of the law anywhere in the, the nation yet. It seems. Well, you know, it's <laughs> policy reform is a spectrum, right? 
And, and I think to, to, on the question of, of decriminalization and, and versus legalization and commercialization, there is a middle, which is depenalization. And we saw the, the state of Vermont take this path when they legislatively became the first state to legalize, but they, their, uh, their bill did not include a licensed or regulatory structure for sale. So the, you know, and then Illinois became the first state to legislatively legalize a, a commercial market structure. Um, so, so you guys, so there, there's, there's disagreement about which state was the first to legalize legislation. <laughs> um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll give the benefit of the doubt to Vermont because what they did was they said, okay, we're, we're not setting up the laws on how it can be sold. But what we are doing is we are taking away the criminal penalties for possession. I believe they had a possession limit of, of, of if I'm not mistaken, two ounces. Um, and then uh, depenalized cultivation of marijuana up to six plants. Um, and then depenalized the gifting of cannabis to another adult. Um, so, you know, and, and this is a similar thing that we see right now in, in Washington, DC, due to the fact that the district is a district and not a state. And, and often we see Congress play stupid partisan games with the, with the, with the lives of the District of Columbia, Columbians, then, you know, there's this DC rider in the, in, the, in the budget bill that prevents DC from setting up a licensed commercial marketplace for adult use. So they have what they call the gray market, where in DC it's legal to possess, it's legal to cultivate um, up to 12 plants, and, and it's legal to gift marijuana. So what, what some enterprising uh, entrepreneurs have done is they've set up uh, systems where you can buy a wonderful t-shirt for $50 or $60 and receive a gift of cannabis. Um, and, and, you know, so that's another alternative in a transition place. Because I think another part that's just, there's a lot of debate in the advocacy community in general is what, what a commercial market should look like, what licensing structure should look like, how, how quickly should we be demanding that, that doors open on stores, and, and how are policies going to allow that haste to happen? And in Illinois, what y'all did, it, now we'll, we'll pivot there, is, is you know, as, as you very well know, and most of your listeners know, and you tell me if I'm getting anything wrong, is you said, okay, we're going to legalize adult use. We're going to allow additional licenses and an additional licensing structure to be created. But in the meantime, before those additional license and entrepreneurs get licensed to, to enter this market, we're going to allow the existing medical market to very quickly open its doors to the general population. So what that did was it allowed a, a first entrance into this new commercial marketplace for the general population to these already established handful of businesses that were very complacent given the, the limited number of actors there were in essentially carving up Illinois' patient population like a closed market crony capitalist fiefdom, right? Yeah. And, and, then, and then they were rewarded to be able to get first entrance into the adult use marketplace, which, you know, is any, any investor or entrepreneur will tell you the value of being the first into a space, 
being able to build that, that, that initial branding, being able to build those consumer relationships, et cetera, et cetera, um, the, the, the intangible value of that. So it really puts all of the soon to be licensed applicants, be it through the general licensing structure or the equity models that, that, that um, are being experimented with in Illinois at a disadvantage to the very small group of all white owners in the uh, previously established uh, medical market. So, you know, I think reasonable people can disagree on, on whether or not we should give expedited entrance into the market to previously established medical providers um, because there, you know, there's good arguments to say like, hey, let's create legal access for adults sooner, right? No reason we should keep telling people who wanna purchase cannabis that they need to buy unregulated or need to get their cannabis at, at the unregulated uh, guy, right? Or right. if they don't, you know, but um, it, it's I I think really good arguments can be made both ways, and and you know at normal it was not our job at national to say, you know this is what a licensing structure should look like everywhere in America. And we really deferred to our chapters on the ground. If we had chapters on the ground, um, we deferred to their judgment as, as far as what they were willing to put effort into. And I know, you know, there, there was a difference in Illinois, even between Illinois normal and Chicago normal about what licensing should look like and, and, and how it should be rolled out. So, you know, even within the normal organization, there are fierce fierce differences of, of thoughts of how to approach these issues. But, you know, we had, I had the really good fortune of really only being tasked with focusing on how the, the interactions of the state interact with consumers. So, so that kind of gave me the ability to, to not enter that argument very substantially. Sure. And I get why at a national level, you would hesitate to uh, try to say carte blanche. This is how it should be. Is that the right expression? I'm high. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, like just just to say, like, this is how the United States should do it. I could see why you hesitate to do that. But can I ask you? Uh, thank you, by the way. That was a brilliant breakdown of, uh, of like the history of Illinois cannabis and, ha- and how it came to be. I think the only thing that you didn't mention is just that even when these operators um, come on the market, like especially the cultivators, they're limited to 14,000. Uh, 14,000 square feet of canopy space, which is, look, I'm not saying that I could manage that, but when you compare that to Cresco's 200,000 square foot facility in Lincoln, you realize like, wait a minute, why are that? Like I get as, I guess, if you want them to be a craft grower, which is what the license is called, that you would want it to be a smaller facility or whatever. But it's just like, then the question becomes, why aren't there different tiers of licensing? But I don't want to get into that. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, like, I assume you're aware of like how it's playing out in all different states. What, what states are doing it right? Like, and feel free to cherry pick. Cause I know some certain states are doing certain things that are great and some things that don't make any sense. Yeah. So. And, and, and I think I, 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 I want to preface this by saying, I don't think anybody's doing it right because we don't yet have the ability to be able to see how any of these regulatory experiments are going to be able to withstand the fall of federal prohibition um, and, and how you know opening up full access to, to banking services and financial tools 
is going to impact empower you know small businesses and big businesses alike right we don't know what that's going to look like fully all we know now is that some businesses are banked some, and many are not and the ones that are banked are paying very high fees and and that gives them an advantage over their their competitors who don't have access to those services um, we don't know how any of these regulatory and licensing structures are going to hold up um, with how they were designed and what their intentions were when we enter the, uh, a national marketplace and we start being able to see, you know, you know, I, I live here in Cleveland, Ohio, right? I would love to be able to go to, to an Ohio distributor of cannabis and purchase a, uh, a bag of Oregon cannabis to go home and enjoy with my Oregon Pinot Noir, right? Oregon makes great agricultural commodities. I love their wine. I love their weed. And, and I would like to be able to access both of those in Cleveland. You know, that is going to severely disrupt the kind of closed market, hyper-restrictive licensing structure here in Ohio. I'm, I'm a big proponent of allowing more licenses. I think license caps are inherently restrictive and that states are, states are denying entrepreneurs, in, you know, their, their citizen entrepreneurs, the ability to try and compete in this market. Um, but I have great concern about, you know, the, uh, the, on, on the flip side of it, I have great concern about the hyper-consolidation that we're seeing now with MSOs purchasing as much as they can um, and get and, and further, the, the, the entrance of much larger uh, actors in the American economy who now are, are realizing that cannabis is gonna be another sector where they can make money, such as we see Altria buying or uh, partial shares in cannabis companies, same with uh, you know, a number of other alcohol companies. And, and that's just the beginning, right? I mean, we're going to see a lot more intersections here into the space. And, and I don't think that capitalism itself has any level of morality. And I think that a lot of cannabis advocates and activists are highly moral people. And I think that it, there, there is now this recognition of a rude reckoning that, that we are at of, of how to leverage the moral incentives that, that led people into cannabis advocacy be it out of, out of a sense of compassion and, and a medical issue or out of a sense of righteous indignation against the, the oppression and, and explicit racism associated with criminalization with this now amoral structure of the profit motive and, and industrialization of cannabis. Um, so I think experiments are really good. I think micro licensing experiments are incredibly important. We're seeing a lot of places explore that. I, you know, just as we saw caregiver structures being experimented with in, with medical programs, I, I, I think that you know we uh, there, there there's a, there's a company out of out of Colorado, um, can't remember their name right now, but I the, they were the first one that I became aware of that's employee owned. I think that's a really interesting thing that that we should see um, be be fostered and incentivized. We're seeing lots of different types of of experiments with social equity programs. Um, you know, I've heard I've heard good things about um, uh, Oakland's programs. I've heard great things about uh, what Massachusetts did as far as making sure that 100% of the uh, of, of the distribution licenses would go to equity uh, qualified applicants. 
Um, but you know how these kind of social equity licensing structures and incentives are going to work when federal prohibition falls and the dormant commerce clause activates, that's another great question. And, and I think we wanna protect the programs that, that we think are doing a really good job of promoting local ownership, promoting diverse ownership, promoting expanded, you know, a terrific consumer access, which, which should be fostering competition and helping bring prices down. Um, you know, and, and there's, I, I could go on and on and on and on, but, um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of different things, but I think at the end of the day, we need our policymakers, we need our regulators to simultaneously be creative, adventurous, and humble enough to, to be able to say that something that they tried with the best of intentions might not be delivering as they had intended it to and be willing to change and, and adjust going forward. Yeah. Man, you bring up a real, like, I think it's the trillion dollar question. Maybe it's gazillion dollars. Who knows? Uh, uh, what, what does federal legalization look like? And I, I, the pessimist in me, like, you know, you've seen the graph of who owns the media, who owns the food. That's, that's kind of where I go, unfortunately. But like you say, I hope there's some way forward in which we can preserve uh, these experiments, if you will. You know what I mean? Without, look, I love Coca-Cola. I had one for lunch. I had a Coke, a smoke and a smile. Um, but uh, I'm not a big fan of what they're doing to the world and uh, what they're, you know, just generally speaking, like Coca-Cola is an easy example. They're not like number one polluter, I think, uh, with, with regard to the waste that they create and everything else. And I just hate to see a, a big company like that, like, take over cannabis and squeeze out the little man. I think there's always going to be a market for some craft cannabis and just like there is for like some really high quality liquor. Right. Um, so that almost balances out what I'm saying, like my pessimism, if you will, but I do worry about what that future looks like, you yeah. know, when you bring up that question. Well, and I think broadly, you know, as, as when we, when we think about what the cannabis you know, consumer marketplace really looks like in its demographics. And, you know, the majority of cannabis sold is going to be to a small number or small, small percentage of cannabis consumers, right? Like most of your, most of the consumers are going to be infrequent um, consumers and, and, uh, you know, who, are going to have whatever kind of moral interests and, and, and regional, you know, some people really like to just hype the fact that they're drinking a beer from their region or going to the local farmer's market. You know, I think those kind of similar market forces are, are going to be at play here, but, you know, how unique the cannabis consumer mark, like uh, engagement is, is going to be really as, as we go down this rabbit hole, I think is going to be, incredibly determinative. And, and I think I, I have my own suspicions. I, I know a lot of other people have, have really strong theories on it, but we're not gonna know until we know, right? We're not gonna be able to know until 20 years after federal prohibition has fallen and we've been able to really dig into consumer data. Um, as far as how, you know, are, are, are people gonna be willing to go buy a Coca-Cola or they're gonna seek out an Illinois made soda company or you know, which is unlikely, right? Um, or is it going to be like, hey, you know, are you going to buy 
this is a bad example because I know that they've since been bought by Anheuser-Busch, but I, I would go to Chicago and get a 312 and I'd be like, yeah, I'm drinking Chicago beer in Chicago. All right, cool. You know, and like that, I think really gives, a you know, in the cannabis space, um, there, there is a real, real opportunity for it to be stronger connections between consumers and the regions uh, uh, or, and, and, and the businesses in the region that they are than there are for other commercial goods in America. Awesome. Well, another uh, thing you brought up earlier uh, that we were talking about that I'm definitely going to add to my vocabulary that I didn't realize, like it's that, like you said, there's like this middle ground and that's, I think where we should be at least is depenalize, right? That's, thank you for providing me with that de distinction, depenalize. And then secondarily, let's get, yeah, let's regulate it so that people can uh, buy, purchase a regulated product. You know what I mean? Because the thing is, like you, like you, like we said earlier, without the regulation, you don't have structures in place that could have a recall that could even test the cannabis. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. when 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 I was living in Washington, I, I just recently moved to Cleveland, and you know, living in D.C., lobbying all the time, found this del delightful, wonderful little delivery service that would deliver to deliver cannabis to my door. And, um, you know, it was unregulated in the gray market. And, you know, I would get one product that, that they were hosting that they said it's, you know, 50 milligrams and I'd have it. And I'm like, yeah, that feels about right. Okay, cool. You know, get another one. Oh no, that it, it feels, you know, light, if you will. Um, I get another one and it's like, oh my God, I'm too high. Like there wasn't that consistency. And, and just as, you know, when you go into a bar, you know, there is going to be a substantial difference between a Miller Lite and, and a really heavy, uh, high ABV craft beer versus, you know, you want to get a pint glass full of wild turkey 151, you, you have a pretty good idea because you're an informed consumer of an alcohol that, that all three of those things are going to impact you differently. And, and I think cannabis consumers deserve that a, a similar consistency that you get out of a regulated uh, market. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting that we're finding, and I don't mean to but it's, I think, like you said, it's good. It is good to talk about this to a certain extent. One of the things that Sam says is that high potency cannabis is this, like they go, they go on and on about bringing up high potency cannabis. And one of the things we've started to see is that sure. Like I, I'll give them, and I told them this in the interview, like I'll give you that historically speaking, the conversation has been about THC, but the paradigm is shifting. THC does not equal potency, right? In other words, like I, I'm sitting here with this dab pen right now and I'm functioning and, you know, firing on all cylinders, but I'll tell you what, if I fire it up, some of my homegrown flower, like it's a different high and, but, but less THC percentage what's going on there. Right. So it's like, that's a disingenuous argument. Um, it's, it's all good. Man. It's a disingenuous argument to say that cannabis is, I mean, we went through, there's actually like, historically there's so many people that have said oh cannabis it's not the the weed we're smoking today is not woodstock like your mom's weed, yeah 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 the woodstock weed exactly you know the whole thing um so we, we've gone through that but it, again it's it's disingenuous when you consider what's what's coming to light you know but i bring that up because you brought up the expectation of a beer versus versus uh, liquor and that's that's the the that's what they use as an analogy they're like Man, you you just gravitate to the highest percentage. So that'd be like if you just were taking shots of Everclear all the time. And it's like, but that's not the same. 
that's not the same and you know also not the reality right like right there there are most cannabis consumers do not want to get uncomfortably high right most cannabis consumers like i mean they're they're you know they 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 are not going to gravitate to that automatically they're they're going to want to try it probably once right they may like it they may not they'll they'll like but it's it's in this country where we purport to be the land of the free we should trust our fellow citizens to make these these kind of decisions and and just as you know we we need to take all reasonable um precautions to deter things like impaired driving right yep. but you know at at some point you know we we have there has to be a level of trust amongst our our, our fellow citizens and and that just kind of speaks to the broader uh, unraveling of civic cohesion that we have in general impacting every other aspect of 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 of, of our society um and and it's really unfortunate that um the potency issue and, and, and you know and we're seeing this concern mongering if you will that yeah. uh that is just going to lead to prohibition right and it's and that's why i bring it up again because there is a bill that just passed in colorado uh this year and and it's i mean it's uh they're saying it's the first ever you know first ever regulatory overhaul of uh, cannabis market it's interesting because the market was they like pointed to people that were like out of state but then this regulatory overhaul applies to the medical program. And it's like, why would you punish anyways, though? It, it was weird how it ended up being enforced. But the point is, you're starting to see that come up more often, like, oh, maybe we should limit THC. And so I think it's an important conversation. I didn't mean to cut you off, though. I felt like you were going somewhere. Oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're on the money. And, you know, I think one of the things that we, we should keep in mind is there are other mechanisms of, of government that, and policy that can be used to deter things that don't include recriminalizing a substance. And, and by recriminalizing high potency products, and you are only going to incentivize unregulated actors to, to, to meet the market demand and then, you know, when we're talking about these kind of things, it's similar to the, the vitamin E acetate issue that we saw with Ivali. That that was the, you know, supposedly the, the biggest, scariest thing ever, because we, we did see people get sick and, mm-hmm. and so people pass away because these illicit unregulated actors were cutting dab pens and and and, and carts with vitamin E acetate to thicken it up. So, you know, similar to cutting down you know, when, when a Coke dealer cuts it down with baking soda, right? Just yeah. to expand their profit because they can, because they're unregulated. And, and that's why, you know, the, the idea of banning high potency products is only going to re is only going to make it less safe um, for, for consumers who seek to uh, uh, acquire them. That's what I think that is right there. Like, let's put it in a bottle. That's what I don't think. And uh, like, prohibitionists understand like if you force them into the shadows then you cannot observe what's going on like if you don't prohibit it then at least you can regulate it then you can make like reasonable arguments like hey maybe we shouldn't be cutting it with vitamin e acetate right i don't know because there were actually some recalls in certain states where it's not that they were cutting it i don't think it's just that they used um one of those, one of the thinners or one of the substances that, and so there was a recall, you know, but again, that wouldn't happen 
if it weren't for the legal structure you know what i mean and so like that's that's one thing it's like if you push it away and out of sight that doesn't fix the problem Mm. like the it will continue if there's a demand for it somebody's going to supply it and it's like why wouldn't you want to keep the suppliers in the limelight so that you can have a conversation with them and be like look this you know for especially for things health related you know i just don't yep anyways i can get lost in this um so so we talked about illinois um and we talked about like what might be great i think it'll be good to to wrap up with how and it's a, it's might be a softball question but how can folks that uh, are looking to get involved and in, or i just may have said the answer there how can uh people that want to see some change institute change, right? Like, cause these people, we, we see it on our subreddit all the time complaining about high prices and limited selection. How can we change that? All right. Well, the, you know, get, get involved the, the name of the game and finding out the best ways for you to be able to be effective. Right. Um, you know, cause it's not getting involved for the sake of getting involved is not going to deliver the goods. Um, so, so really, you know, think about what, in, what you, you know, listener, you as an individual have, you know, are good at, have the time to do, have, have, have the, the, the fire in your belly to when you commit to doing it, you're actually going to get it done. Um, there are a couple different ways. One, uh, Illinois is, is one of only three legal states that still maintains a criminalized uh, nature for home cultivation. I know I, I've, I've actually been in touch with a, a, an Illinois state lawmaker who intends to introduce a home cultivation bill um, in, in the coming months. So be on the lookout for that and be tenaciously supportive of that. Make sure you're calling your state representative, your state senator. They will talk with you about these things. Um, democracy is not a spectator sport. That's, uh, it, it's, it's actually... Uh, there in Illinois, there, there's a program called the Mikva Challenge, and I, I briefly worked on a congressional campaign just north of Chicago. And they sent in some kids that they all wore these shirts that said "Democracy is a verb," and like that's very true. And 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 I think that uh, a lot of us as as American citizens discount because we're conditioned to do so, um, discount our own ability and our own agency. And I'll tell you, as a former state house staffer uh, myself, state lawmakers are willing to listen to their constituents. They might not do what you want them to do, but they will engage in a conversation with you about it um, because they are that much closer to you and they don't want you running around town talking shit about them in in such a small community. So um, contact, build relationships with your state lawmakers, build relationships, you know, state house, state senate, Build relationships with your city council members um, about zoning issues. I know zoning is not like a super exciting thing, but that's actually one of the biggest problems that we see in the emerging cannabis market is these arbitrary restrictions preventing cannabis um, facilities from being so far away from churches or schools or things like that. And, and I think that we need to be more thoughtful about that. We need to act, you know, open up access for licensing we need to open up access for, um, for resources, AKA money to those entrepreneurs to help them get, um, to get off the ground in this era of, of federal prohibition preventing 
traditional access to capital, which means the only people who have the money to put together these, these um, applications are traditionally either they themselves are already independently wealthy or backed by venture capitalists or hedge fund managers. And, and I know that for many cannabis consumers, that's not who you want to see owning the dispensary down the street. Um, so you got to get more engaged. And I will say shout out to my amazing, amazing colleagues. Um, you know, despite me not working at normal, I still, I, I still going to refer to them as my colleagues forever at Chicago Normal, um, who have really, really tenaciously um, engaged in the political process, demanded to be heard specifically on social equity licensing structures and consumer access and medical issues. Um, I think they do a, a really spectacular job. Um, I know they got a training coming up for over Martin Luther King Day weekend. So if you're hearing this and, and, and you, you, you can get registered, get registered. If you're hearing it after that happened, go check out, see what resources they posted, get engaged with Chicago Normal. Um, and just in general, you know, if, if you don't know the politics and, and the efforts of the companies you patronize, right, there, you know, you should not shop at companies that are lobbying against your interests. And some of these, you know, not all of the, the, the multi-state operators, but some of the multi-state operators are actively lobbying against legalization programs that would expand access for more entrepreneurs to get yep. licensed. And, you know, I, one of my most recent fights with this are, are, are wonderful uh, activists and advocates with Delaware Normal were, were lobbying for a legalization bill they'd worked on for years. And um, it had already passed in one of the chambers of the Delaware State House. And, uh, you know, the Columbia Care and a handful of other companies uh, actually testified against it. And the reason why they testified against it is because they didn't want more competition Mm -hmm. um, because the bill would have allowed for additional uh, companies to get licensed in the state, and and they only wanted to they they wanted to control their artificial monopoly with with only a very other limited number of companies that were in the medical program there in Delaware. So, you know, what we really got to keep in mind here, and and it's a failure of of, of creativity uh, or creative thinking, and, and is. Every, all the medical programs that we've seen created and all the adult use programs we've seen created have been created in this defensive posture. So that way state policymakers and regulators can say, no, federal government, stay out. I know you have prohibition, but look, look at how tightly we're controlling this. Look at how few actors are in this. We got this. We can, we can take care of this, stay away, right? Federal prohibition is going to be gone soon. And the justifications for a lot of these restrictive policies, and this, a lot of this, you know, hyper regulation as a defensive, um, as a defensive tactic to keep the feds out, are no longer going to be necessary. And and I think that they are all they 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 all need to be reevaluated, reassessed, and possibly um, reformed or repealed. And you know, we're we're getting close to that point. You know, Congress is a Congress is Congress, you know, 96% of Americans think there's too much money in Congress or too much money in our politics, but the Congress isn't going to address it because the, of, of the different incentive structures and, and marijuana, I'd hate to see marijuana reform that's good for consumers, good for patients, fall into a similar trap. Um, so, you know, get engaged, get informed, get active, 
um, and, and do so in a, in a sustainable way that for both your mental health and, and your well-being as a member of society. Yeah, very well said. And uh, got a question for one thing that you mentioned, but I did want to add to something you mentioned as well. Uh, you mentioned, you know, like Columbia Care and a few, a handful of other companies supporting um, or lobbying against some provisions in a certain case. Um, also, folks, if you're looking into more of that, there's in New York, there was the NYMCIA, the New York Medical Cannabis Industry Association, and they produced this letter. Um, well, it's a big memo, but part of it is uh, there's a chapter called The Fallacy of Home Grow. And if you look at some of the companies that signed on to this, that, that are a part of this in industry association, they are some of the some operators in Illinois. Like you say, it's not all of them um, and not all the MSOs, but a handful of them, um, they've signed on to it. So lest I name names and, and be inaccurate, go check out the the memorandum that was leaked, I think, by our friends at marijuanamoment.net. So um, I'm going to have to check that out, too. I'm, I'm, I'm this is uh, I'm unaware of that letter, so I'm going to have to look at it, too. Thank yeah, you. yeah. If you want to note it, uh, the fallacy of home grow, that's the best thing to look up if you're trying to find it. It's very interesting. Like, start with that and read it. And then, like I say, look who is part of the New York Medical Cannabis Industry Association. So anyways, it, just to add to that, hey, you mentioned the Chicago Normal Workshop. I don't believe you mentioned a date, though. I'll throw it at the beginning of this podcast, just, you oh, know, so people hear it and stuff. But. Yeah, no, it's this Sunday and Monday. Perfect. Um, so the, the 16th and 17th, and I am kicking off the, the, the workshop on the 17th. You know, it's funny, I should know that because I've been helping them uh, advertise it. They sent me banners that I've been sharing, but uh, I'm not able to make it. So that's why I kind of haven't been, haven't been looking. I'm going to be out of town Sunday and Monday. So I'll be, I'll be looking for those uh, resources afterwards, like you mentioned. So um, did you, sorry, were you about to say something? No, just th th thanks again for, for, for having me join. And, yeah. Thank uh, you for, for coming, man. It's for folks who might be interested, um, you know, I am I am going to be launching a marijuana pack in in the coming weeks. Um, it, you know, the uh, a political action committee that is aimed to bring more entity, more actors in the organizing space to the marijuana policy reform conversation. Um, so, if you want to find out more about that, um, you you can get on my my newsletter for the firm that I'm incubating it in called Useful Strategies. Um, and I, I think I can get you the link, Cole, so you can have it uh, in the show Perfect. Notes. Perfect. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. And I was going to say, we'll also throw uh, Justin's Twitter handle in the show notes so that you can follow him on Twitter and keep up with everything that Justin's doing. Justin, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Honestly, I sent you a DM and I was like, there's no way he's going to see this. And you reply to it and you're like, let's do this thing, man. And I can't tell you how excited I, I've been to sit down and talk to you and it, it, you exceeded my expectations. I think this is going to be a great conversation for everybody to listen to. And I'd love to have you on uh, sometime again in the future when, when uh, you know, you announce more about your project. And of course, hopefully there will be uh, new positive things we can talk about, right? Hopefully we continue to see this evolution towards uh, logic, as I like to say. Um, so uh, on that note, um, so you mentioned, uh, yeah, we'll have this, the link um, in the show notes, the handle in the show notes, and folks, uh, we will see you next time on the Chillinois podcast. Thanks again.